0: If anybody ever deserved hanging, it was David Brown. He was a killer who left a bloody path from the Texas Mexico borderlands all the way to Los Angeles. His trail finally ran out on a January day in L.A. in 1855 when a lynch mob, fed up with judicial bias and delay, strung him up on the crossbeam of a corral. The crime that cost Davy Brown his life was the knifing of his roommate, a guy named Pickney Clifford. But he had it coming for a litany of evil deeds over many, many years. He rode with some of the nastiest desperados in frontier history, the notorious Glanton Gang. Brown was forged into a killer in one of the most violent times and places in American history. He was born about 1825 in East Texas, and was just a kid when the Texas Revolution wrested that territory from Mexico in a bloody fray that set the legend of the Alamo and the massacre at Goliad into the Texan consciousness. Brown, like his future leader John Joel Glanton, served in the Mexican War of 1846 to 1848, Brown rode with the first Texas-mounted volunteers, which meant that, essentially, he was a Texas Ranger. Now, the Texas Rangers of that era were not a law enforcement outfit. They were a paramilitary partisan force engaged in what amounted to a blood feud with Comanches and Mexicans. General Zachary Taylor praised their effectiveness, but he regarded them as lawless and out of control. He wrote, One species of mounted force peculiar to the western frontier of the United States is efficient. The inhabitants of that frontier, from their vicinity to hostile Indians, are well practiced in partisan warfare, and although they will not easily submit to discipline, yet take the field in rough, uncouth habiliments, and following some leader chosen for his talent and bravery, Perform partisan duties in a manner hardly to be surpassed. The Rangers conducted brutal counter-guerrilla operations in northern Mexico, and they had a bad tendency to kill indiscriminately, innocent civilians being hard to distinguish from guerrillas in this war, as in all wars of this nature. Glanton himself bloodied his hands with at least one out-and-out murder He killed a Mexican civilian for his horse. That aspect of the rangers outraged General Taylor, and uh, actually he ordered Glanton's arrest, but uh, another ranger officer tipped Glanton off and, and, and he fled. Taylor said of the Texans that they committed extensive depredations and outrages on the peaceful inhabitants were it possible to rouse the Mexican people to resistance, no more effectual plan could be devised than the very one pursued by some of our volunteer regiments. It was not for nothing that the rangers were known to the Mexicans as Los Diablos Tejanos. David Brown would soon sign on to ride with the devil. When the war ended in 1848, Glanton returned to his home in San Antonio, but post-war restlessness quickly got the better of him, and he left his wife and children to lead an expedition to the brand-new goldfields of California in 1849. So he, he was a 49er. The outfit went south into Mexico on a circuitous route to California and became stranded in the Mexican state of Chihuahua. And it was here that Glanton launched the career that would make him infamous. He contracted with the government of that Mexican state to hunt Apaches for a bounty on their scalps. The Mexican states of Chihuahua and Sonora were tormented by the Apaches, who raided villages so persistently that some were abandoned and just left to fall into this kind of stark and eerie ruin. The Mexican state official's answer was to make a paying proposition out of slaughter. A University of Virginia American Studies Department treatise notes that in 1849, Chihuahuas Le Quinto, which would remain on the books until 1886, passed, setting a price of $150 for live women and children, $200 for the scalps of warriors, and $250 For live warriors, most professionals thought that the extra $50 did not justify the increased risk, and so they traded in receipts only. Receipts being the scalps of the Indians. The scalp bounty was was controversial in Chihuahua, and it actually turned out to be a, a bloody disaster. As the Handbook of Texas Online notes, Glanton's campaigns during the remainder of 1849 were widespread, successful, and financially rewarding. By 1850, however, it had become increasingly difficult for the Glanton gang to find hostile Apaches, and they began attacking peaceful agricultural Indians in the vicinity of Fort El Norte. Finally, they turned to taking Mexican scalps for profit. As a result, the Chihuahua government drove Glanton and his company into Sonora and put a bounty on his scalp. There he contracted with the authorities to fight the Indians, traded Indian scalps for bounties, and again resorted to taking Mexican scalps to increase his profit. The Glanton outfit would have been just a kind of obscure, bloody footnote in Borderlands history, except that Cormac McCarthy followed their trail of murder and destruction across the desert in his masterpiece novel, Blood Meridian, or The Evening Redness in the West. David Brown is depicted as a particularly vicious member of the gang who wore a necklace of human ears. The Glanton gang was the stuff of nightmares, and also of what I consider to be the great American horror novel, but they were not demons. They were men, actual historical men, which is, in a way, considerably more terrifying. The whole bunch of them came to a bad end. In 1850, the Glanton Gang seized a ferry across the Colorado River, which was operated by Yuma Indians, and the Scalp Hunters abused the Yuman women, and killed American and Mexican travelers and stole their possessions. On April 23, 1850, the Yuma struck Glanton's camp and slaughtered most of the gang. David Brown survived the massacre of his brothers in mayhem because he wasn't there. Another unrelated act of violence saved him from the slaughter. Brown had ridden with Glanton and other gang members across the Mojave Desert to San Diego earlier in the spring to secure supplies, and while he was there, he got into a beef with an American soldier in a bar and shot him dead. Brown was jailed in San Diego, but was able to bribe a jailer, possibly with funds provided by Glanton, and fled north to Los Angeles. When word reached L.A. of the slaughter at the Colorado River crossing, it it induced a a panic among the white residents who were convinced that the Yumas were going to cut off the vital crossing and that there might be a general uprising that might even reach as far as, as Los Angeles. So the heavily armed gamblers and roughnecks of the Pueblo of Los Angeles rode out into the desert, in a punitive expedition against the the Yumas with David Brown riding as a guide and a scout. But the expedition just kind of fizzled out in a farce, and Brown returned to Los Angeles where his reputation as a hard man earned him a position as a deputy city marshal. As you can imagine, he wasn't exactly the kind of man that you want to hire as a cop. In his book, Eternity Street, Violence and Justice in Frontier, Los Angeles, John Mac Ferreger recounts an example of Brown's policing style. A criminal complaint by saloon keeper Charlie Burroughs in early 1851 suggests something of, a, of Brown's approach to policing. Late one afternoon, he burst into Burroughs' place, claiming to be in hot pursuit of a fleeing criminal. Not seeing the fugitive among the men at the bar, he had demanded admission to Burroughs' locked storeroom. There's no one in there, Burroughs objected, and asked to see some evidence of Brown's authority. Brown drew a large revolver and pushed it into Burroughs' face. Here it is, he said, I will kill you. Burroughs, who was not easily intimidated, began to bellow and his place quickly filled with curious men from the street outside. Looking around, Brown holstered his weapon and exited, muttering a string of obscenities. Burroughs filed a charge of assault, but the county grand jury declined to hand down an indictment, and Brown continued to wear a badge. But in the municipal elections later that year, when he stood as a candidate for city marshal, he was defeated in an overwhelming vote. So that ended Davy Brown's law enforcement career, but it didn't end his career of violence. Uh, he was charged with assault for attacking a Californio who was uh, pulling into Los Angeles from Rancho La Brea with a, a cart loaded with tar uh, from the La Brea Tar Pits, which are famous for uh, their anthropological value. But they were used for, uh, the tar from the, the tar pits in La Brea was used for tarring roofs on these uh, flat adobes in the Pueblo of Los Angeles. And uh, this poor Mexican fellow named Juan de Dios Ballestros um, He was driving his cart through the Pueblo of of Los Angeles and a bunch of Americans, including David Brown, uh, demanded that he drive them out to an Indian encampment on the north side of L.A. where they hoped to find some women. And uh, they piled onto his cart and at one point uh, the cart jolted and dumped one of the Americans out into the street and Brown shouted at... Byestros to control his uh his oxen, and then this drunk American that had been dumped out onto the street hit one of the uh of the oxen, and you know that jolted the cart, and that made Brown mad, and he pulled his revolver out and and took four shots at byestros um and then dragged him out of the cart by his hair. And pistol whipped him. So this Californio had a, uh, a gunshot wound to his left arm and a fractured skull. Um, and Brown was arrested for this. And uh, but he was when he was brought to court, Bayestros was too scared to testify against him. So he was acquitted of charges of, of assault. Brown took work as a cowboy at the largest ranch in southern california which was uh known as rancho santa ana del chino and the foreman sent uh brown with a crew into sonora mexico to purchase some cattle to bring back and on the way back from uh from that trek he got into a dispute with another vaquero and uh, and killed him which uh really upset the, the crew. Um, one of the crew members wrote, we buried the poor man and blamed Brown very much for he had no justifiable provocation for the deed, but, uh, nobody pressed charges on that. So the only thing that, uh, that finally brought Davy Brown to justice was the murder in Los Angeles of a young man who, uh, was living with Brown, rooming with Brown, um, who was a stable hand named Pinckney Clifford. And uh, apparently Pinckney Clifford was kind of a, a hanger-on and a wannabe uh, who hung around with uh, the rough gambling crowd in Los Angeles and, uh, and sort of looked up to, to David Brown as a, as a tough hombre. So in, uh, in October of 1854, Clifford asked Brown to get some wood uh, for their, their room, uh, to heat the room, because it was chilly. And Brown, who was drunk, as he apparently often was, took exception to this young man telling him what to do. And so they, uh, they argued, and the argument got more heated, And Brown became more angry and belligerent And finally he pulled out a knife And stabbed Clifford to death And uh, this was enraging To uh, the residents of downtown Los Angeles And and they almost lynched Brown on the spot Um, And uh, after the funeral of Pinckney Clifford a group of, uh, of his friends decided that they were, in fact, going to string David Brown up. Um, and at that point, the mayor of Los Angeles, a man named Stephen Clark Foster, jumped up on a table and tried to bring this mob to order, and he told them that uh, the county grand jury was going to indict Brown for murder and he would go to trial and that the mob should allow the justice system, which had been established pretty early on in the Anglo ascendancy in California. Foster said, let that legal system do its job and, and take care of, of this clear cut case of murder. And he said, if they don't, I'll resign as mayor and I will lead you in lynching Brown. And that's in what ended up having to happen. Um, not because the trial court acquitted Brown. They didn't. They they found him guilty, as he very clearly was. There were plenty of witnesses, and it was an open and shut case. So Brown was tried and convicted and sentenced to hang, and he was supposed to hang on the same day that a young Californio, who had been convicted of killing an American because he was an American, was to hang also. There was supposed to be a double hanging. The problem was that the California Supreme Court granted a stay of execution for David Brown. And they didn't grant a stay of execution for this Californio whose name was Felipe Alvitre. And as you might expect, that disparity struck the Californio population um, as outrageous. The, uh, The American was granted a stay of execution, the Californio was to go ahead and hang and Weren't they both equally guilty? Now, it wasn't just the California population that was outraged by this. A lot of Anglos were as well. They, uh, they saw it as a miscarriage of justice, a, an obvious unfairness, and also as a danger because they, they didn't want to create a situation where um, it was an us-against-them condition with the Californios, who considerably outnumbered the Anglo population in Los Angeles at this time. So the Los Angeles newspapers started calling for lynch mob justice for David Brown. Mayor Stephen Foster was true to his word. He had said that if the justice system failed, that he would resign as mayor, and, uh, and lead a lynch mob in, in getting frontier justice. And so he showed up at the jail and climbed up on a barrel, and he said, When Brown committed his murder during the days when crime eclipsed the flame of justice, the citizens of this town came together to punish him. Everyone wanted to execute him immediately, but I opposed such violence, declaring we should allow the law to fulfill its duty. We have all seen how Alvitre and Brown were tried and sentenced by the same judge to suffer the same penalty of death on the same day, thus uniting their destinies. We now see, my fellow citizens, that this will not happen, blocked by the order of the Supreme Court to suspend Brown's execution. This is an injustice, Signores, and I, who have given my word, feel the infringement of the law more than anyone else. Now, the situation that Foster had placed himself in appeared to be dangerous because uh, the, the sheriff, James Barton, had gathered a posse of, of armed men to defend the jail and had said that he was going to defend Brown and the order of the Supreme Court. So it looked like the lynch mob was going to have to storm the jail in the face of armed defenders. that there would be gunfire, and that people would be killed. And Foster, of course, knew that he would be in the lead of that crowd. So as the crowd is is yelling, hang him, hang him, Foster said, and now... There is nothing to do but bring Brown out and hang him, and I will die with all of you. But somewhere along the line, Barton and his posse had thought better of defending Brown and the order of the California Supreme Court, and they had skedaddled out the back of the jail. So no shots were fired. The mob broke into the jail yard, and then they broke into Brown's cell and cut his shackles off of him and, uh, and dragged him out. They uh, dragged him across the street to uh, the gate of a corral, which was right across from the sheriff's office. And then they tossed a rope over the, the crossbeam and stood Brown up on a chair, and put the noose around his neck. And uh, Brown was nervous and trembling, obviously facing death, but he, he pretty much kept his cool and, and, and talked to some of the people in the crowd. He claimed that he did not remember anything about the killing of Pinckney Clifford, which may be true. I mean, at that point in his life, Brown was, uh, was clearly an alcoholic, a blackout drunk. Um, He said, if I did, I am ready to give up my life in retribution. But, he said, he was not very happy about the idea that he was going to be hanged by what he called a lot of greasers and requested that some American come up and do the job. But, uh, according to the newspaper accounts of of the incident nobody did step up, and when one of the Californios grabbed the chair to pull it out from under him, Brown felt it move, and, and he jumped off himself and uh, and strangled there. It wasn't a, a clean hanging. He, uh, he died rough, um, and certainly deserved it, and then was uh, hauled off to be buried in a Protestant graveyard, while Alvitre, who had been hanged officially that day, was taken to be buried in a Catholic graveyard. The hanging of David Brown tells us a lot about Frontier Los Angeles. What it says to me is that you know, racial tensions certainly existed in the 1850s in Los Angeles. After all, as I said, Felipe Alvitre was convicted of killing a man because he was an Americano. But the brown hanging was not any kind of a racial issue. It was, wasn't a question of Anglos versus Californios. Most everybody in Los Angeles, Anglo or of Mexican descent, saw the injustice of the disparity in the way Brown and Alvitre were being treated. Brown getting a stay of execution while Alvitre did not. Although it seems possible um, that Alvitre actually was supposed to get a stay of execution and there was a paperwork error. I've seen that in... Uh, In one source, but uh, I I don't know if that's accurate or not, but it, it doesn't really matter because the perception was there. He did not get a stay of execution. The perception was there that the California was getting strung up by the law and that the Anglo was going to skate and nobody liked that Americans or Californios. In true California fashion of the era, the leading lights of the community were ready, willing, and able to enact community justice, even at some risk to themselves. Even though that risk didn't pan out, um, it certainly could have, and uh, Stephen Foster was willing to take a bullet on behalf of the community to see justice done, even if it was rough justice. Brown may have complained about being strung up by, quote, a lot of greasers, but the lynch mob was, in the parlance of the year 2022, diverse and inclusive. And they sought and achieved complete equity in the administration of frontier justice. This was a pretty notorious lynching episode in Los Angeles history, but it was certainly not a unique one. Lynching was a common practice in frontier Los Angeles. Um, White Americans, Californios, Indians, um, pretty much everybody um, faced the potential of mob justice if they committed murder. This wasn't because there weren't any legal institutions, as noted, they were established pretty much immediately. I mean, we're talking about um, you know, the 1850s, very shortly after Americans took possession of California. And they were pretty robust legal institutions and pretty formal um, for a frontier society. Lynching prevailed in California in that era because those legal institutions didn't consistently deliver what the community demanded. The community demanded that killers die for their crimes right now. And it wouldn't be until the 1870s that the lynch mob faded into history in Los Angeles. My main sources for this episode were Eternity Street, Violence and Justice in Frontier Los Angeles by John MacFaragher. Reminiscences of a Ranger, Early Times in Southern California by Horace Bell. And Notes on Blood Meridian by John Sepich. The Americana singer-songwriter Ben Nichols of the band Lucero created a full album of songs inspired by Blood Meridian titled The Last Pale Light in the West. And it's a fantastic album, um, really a tremendous accomplishment in in this genre of music. Uh, One of my favorite tunes on the album always has been Davy Brown. And uh, I'll put a link in the show notes and on the blog to that song. You obviously noticed that uh, I deviated a little bit from... uh, my plan, I had uh, talked in the introductory episode about uh, about the next episode being on the manhunt for and the capture of Tubercio Vasquez. Uh, I decided to kind of stick to a more chronological um, approach to telling these stories because... Uh, you know for one thing the 1850s were just a fascinating period in Los Angeles and we might as well start there um and also some of the 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 way things were conducted in the hunt for Tiburcio Vasquez and the way he was uh was handled in jail and in his trial as really distinctive from the way things were handled in the eighteen fifties. So it just it just made sense to to stick to, to chronology and uh, but never fear, we will get to Tubercio Vasquez in due time. Um want to thank all of our patrons who make the Frontier Partisans podcast and the Frontier Partisans blog possible. Those are Ash Harry Kaiser, Mike McIver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnelly, Matthew Eilman, Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Shortfager. And uh, also Chris West from Los Angeles, California. Chris was an LAPD officer for many years and uh, he's got some interesting stories to tell, uh, a couple of which I think are going to find their way into one of these podcasts uh, on the uh, on the principle of continuity and persistence. So I want to thank all of you patrons. Greatly appreciated as always. And uh, if any listener, is interested in supporting the podcast and and Frontier Partisans in general, the link to the Patreon page is uh, in the show notes. And uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you down the trail.